Nobody wants to remember that this is where thousands of enslaved people were shipped in and paraded up the street to be sold. Just 10 miles from here, black people were pulled from their homes and lynched. Nobody talks about it. And now this black boy from Delaware walks into their courtrooms and expects them to admit they convicted an innocent black man. I promised that whole community I was going to bring him home. And I just made things worse. I've heard a lot of lawyers say it's not a good idea to get close to your clients. Distance is healthy. You choose to get close to every one of them. And you love them like they are your family. And when your family is hurting, you're hurting. There's no way that I could fully understand what it is that you're going through. But I am pretty sure that you mean a lot more to this community than you think. Everybody, welcome to Hope this holiday weekend. A lot of you will have the day off from work tomorrow and there's no school. As a nation, we pause to remember the life and the legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., a man who was killed because he was fighting for justice and freedom and civil rights. Dr. King famously had a dream, and I think it's important when we gather together for worship, uh, to remind ourselves, the dream, the dream is not something that originated with Martin Luther King Jr. This is God's dream. But it seems like whenever we start talking about things like uh, racial inequality or economic injustice, our temptation is to say, oh, that's a political issue, that's a legal issue, uh, that's a justice system issue. And of course they are, but first and foremost, these are theological issues. Issues that have everything to do with who you believe God to be. And so for generations of human history, we have forgotten God's dream for this world. Now the prophet Micah is used by God in the Old Testament to remind the people of Israel that they have forgotten God's dream. Historically, we know Micah is doing his prophetic work about 700 years before Jesus. It's when Assyria 
was the superpower. And as the Assyrian Empire is growing and expanding and they're conquering the nations around them, one of the nations they conquer is the nation of Israel. And so God says to Micah, there's a message I want you to deliver to my people. And the message gets delivered kind of at the end of that nation, before their downfall. Part of the message is God wants the people to know, I see the wickedness, I see the evil that's running rampant throughout uh, this country. God is upset at the violence, at the bloodshed, particularly uh, bloodshed by innocent people. And God is not pleased with uh, the way the country has become wealthy. Not that he's opposed to wealth, but God sees the economic driver for the nation of Israel during this particular time period. It, they're getting wealthy by exploiting people, oppressing people, uh, mistreating the poor. All this bad stuff is happening, but the people keep showing up for worship. They go to the temple, they go to the synagogue, they offer uh, their sacrifices. It's, it's almost like the people believe if God sees all of our religious activity, that will make God happy. Never mind that the rest of their activity is not following in God's ways. It's hurtful to people. And so God says to Micah, I want you to remind the people what it is that God is looking for, what it is that matters most to God. And that kind of gets summarized in Micah chapter 6, verse 8, which is on the screen. Let's read this out loud together. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? to act justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Act justly, love mercy, walk humbly with God. Uh, the video clip we just watched is from a movie called Just Mercy. Uh, the movie is based on a book by the same title. Just Mercy is a phrase that comes right from the pages of Scripture, the book is written by a man named Brian Stevenson, and it kind of tells the story of his life and his work. Mr. Stevenson goes to Harvard, gets a degree uh, as a lawyer from Harvard Law School, and then he moves to Alabama, to the Deep South, and he starts a nonprofit called the Equal Justice Initiative. For over 30 years now, Mr. Stevenson and his colleagues have been helping people who've been wrongly convicted or who are suffering from unjust prison sentences. Uh, on the website of the Equal Justice Initiative, it says Mr. Stevenson and his staff have won rehearsals, uh, reversals, relief, or release from prison for over 140 wrongly condemned prisoners on death row, like Walter McMillan. He, he's the primary case uh, throughout the course of the book and the movie. They're looking at the case of Walter McMillan, one of the 140 who gets sentenced to death when he's actually innocent. I want you to think about that statistic for a little bit. Long enough for it to make you uncomfortable. 140 people who get sentenced to die, and it turns out they are innocent. I want you to think about the ripple effects of that kind of injustice. What does that mean for the families of those 140 people? What does it mean for their communities? What impact does it have on their ability to trust or to distrust the government, law enforcement, the criminal justice system? 
I first heard about uh, Brian Stevenson, I was watching 60 Minutes, and they were interviewing him. He was at the National Memorial for Peace and Justice, which is a six-acre memorial that remembers the lives of more than 4,400 black people killed in racial terror lynchings between the year 1877 and 1950. Uh, This picture in the upper right-hand corner uh, is a picture of what you would see if you went to visit that memorial. You walk around and there are 800 steel kind of, um, I don't know, columns that are hanging around this memorial. And etched into the steel are the names and stories of these 4,400 black people. There are 800 of these steel columns because there were 800 counties in America where a racial terror lynching took place. Again, this is information that should make us a little uncomfortable. And in our discomfort, I want us to imagine the ripple effects. 4,400 families living in a time, living in a place where because of the color of your skin, if somebody got angry enough with you, they could get a mob of people, drag you out of town and kill you, and there would be no consequences. What does that do to an individual, a family, a community at a psychological level? Think of the generational trauma something like that starts to create. Think about the way it impacts how you view the world, Uh, the perspective that you have, the lens through which you try to make sense of the world. It is not surprising that a black person in America is going to have a very different lens than someone like me who grew up in the middle of Iowa. And when you view the world through very different lenses, from coming at it from very different angles and perspectives, it's very easy for that to create division and for the division to create walls. Part of the vision that we have as a church at Hope, we want to be powered by the Spirit to bring Christ to all cultures, revive the world with God's love, and make heaven more crowded. We have to acknowledge that there are these walls of division that exist But our hope, our belief, our faith is in the gospel of Jesus Christ that tears down walls of division. That's what happened in the uh, history of the early church. These walls of division between Jew and Gentile and the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, the love of God, tore down those walls. What kinds of walls do we need to be tearing down? Might God be asking us to tear down as a church that's trying to bring Christ to all cultures? So God, through the prophet Micah, calls us to this vision. Act justly. Love mercy. Walk humbly with your God. God gives John the Baptist a pretty similar message. Remember John the Baptist is in the wilderness around the Jordan River, and he's calling people to be baptized, repent of your sins, and be baptized. Uh, Last week we had... um, baptisms uh, at all the Hope campuses. At the end of the service, we invite people, if you want to be baptized, if you want to renew your baptism, we extended the invitation. Over 700 people came for that, and we're praising God for that. It's incredible to see year after year. So here's John the Baptist baptizing people for the repentance of their sins. And remember, repentance, it's not just saying, oh, I did something wrong, but repentance carries with it this idea that now I'm going to be a changed person. I'm going to think differently. I'm going to act differently, behave differently. So in Luke chapter 3, starting in verse 10, it says, The crowds asked, what should we do? We've just been baptized. 
um, how do we produce fruit in keeping with baptism? John replied, you have two shirts, give one to the poor. If you have food, share it with those who are hungry. Even corrupt tax collectors came to be baptized and asked, Teacher, what should we do? He replied, Collect no more taxes than the government requires. What should we do? Asked some soldiers. John replied, Don't extort money or make false accusations and be content with your pay. Three different groups of people come to John in the wilderness to be baptized, to repent of their sins, and then they ask, What should we do? I think you could say they're asking, what would it look like for us to act justly and love mercy and walk humbly with God? And John gives them very specific instructions, very specific actions for them. But I hope you noticed there was a theme in all the actions, and the theme was using your resources, using your power for the sake of those who do not have resources or do not have power. That when we repent of our sins, it moves us in the direction of taking care of the poor using our power and our resources to help. What should we do? It's the question they have for John the Baptist. I think it's the question for us. What does it look like for us as individuals? What does it look like for us as a community of faith, the body of Christ, to act justly and love mercy and walk humbly with our God? We're going to dig into that together today, but before we do, I'd like to just pray for us. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, your word tells us that you love us, and your love for us is patient and kind. And so I thank you, Lord, for your patience with us, your kindness toward us, because so many times we are stubborn and full of pride and greed and fear and anger, and all of these things, Lord, sometimes blind us to the injustice around us. So in your love, your patient and kind love for us, would you open our eyes? Would you help us see? Would you break our hearts for the things that break your heart? Lord, empower us with your Holy Spirit. Inspire us and equip us to be the church you're calling us to be. I ask this in the strong and powerful name of Jesus, the one who saves. Amen. So, Tomorrow at 1 o'clock at Hope Elam, uh, the Hope campus that we have kind of uh, in the heart of Des Moines near the Drake neighborhood, there's going to be a Martin Luther King Jr. celebration service. And so you're invited to that. The speaker is Brittany Barnett, who has just an, a fascinating story. Grows up in Texas. Uh, her mom becomes addicted to drugs. And as she is feeding her addiction, her mom commits some crimes. And so her mom is actually in prison for a lot of Britney's childhood. She watches The Cosby Show and is inspired by Claire Huxtable. Her dream is to become a lawyer. She pursues and achieves that childhood dream. But on her way to becoming a lawyer, she uncovers some, uh, her eyes are opened to some of the unjust laws that we had in our country. For example, did you know that from 1986 until the year 2010 in our country, there were um, guidelines around sentencing that judges had to follow related to uh, drug crimes? So if you had five grams of crack cocaine, uh, there was a 100 to 1 ratio. Five grams of crack cocaine, you could have 500 grams of powder cocaine, and you would get the same uh, sentence. You understand that? Five grams, which isn't very much, 
or 500 grams, which is quite a bit, crack cocaine, powder cocaine, you'd re, you would mandatory sentence was the same. So when you start to realize the primary people who were being convicted of crimes related to crack cocaine were poor and black, and the primary people being convicted for crimes related to powder cocaine were wealthy and white, it's no surprise that the prisons in our country started to fill up with young black people during those years. I graduated from high school in 1990. The summer after graduation, I toured with a, a Christian music group. We went all over the United States in a tour bus. There was about 30 of us going from city to city, church to church, doing a, a concert pretty much every night that summer. In the middle of the summer, we were in Texas, and one day, our concert was not at a church. It was at the Huntsville State Penitentiary in Texas. So our tour bus pulled up in front of the prison. We unloaded all the equipment, the lights and the speakers and the microphones. We carried it into the heart of the prison. There was a, like a room that was kind of used as a chapel. Got everything set up for the concert, and then they took us to the cafeteria in the prison uh, where we had a meal that was less than excellent. And then it was time to go and have the concert. And the room filled up with prisoners. And we sang about God's love, and grace, and forgiveness, and hope. After the concert, we had the opportunity to uh, interact with uh, the people who were there to watch the concert, to uh, talk with them, to pray with them. I was 18 years old, and the two inmates that I talked to were my peers. One was 18, and one was 20, and both had life sentences. In the 33, 34 years since that summer, I graduated from college, I got married, became a dad, had my kids graduate from college, these different milestone events in my life, and I'll have flashes of memory of those two guys. And I'll wonder, all this stuff that I'm doing in my life, are they still in that prison in Texas serving out a life sentence? As I was reading and researching and putting this message together, I came across a phrase that I'd never heard before connected to our criminal justice system. It's the phrase, buried alive. Buried alive is a, a phrase a lot of people use when someone gets convicted of, of a drug crime, just a small amount of drugs, and they get sentenced for the rest of their life in prison. It's like we're burying them alive. Brittany Barnett felt called by God to leave her job as a corporate attorney and to instead spend her time, her energy, and her resources helping people who'd been buried alive. Take a look. About two years ago, I answered my doorbell to find a postal worker holding a large, heavy box. It was a package from my client, Chris Young. Chris was being transferred from a federal prison in Kentucky to one hundreds of miles away in Texas. When I slid open the box, a handwritten note from Chris fell out. Please take care of these for me, Brittany. I don't want to mess up in the move. They're all I've got. At the time I received the package, Chris was nearly 10 years into serving a life without parole sentence from an arrest for drug dealing at the young age of 22. Chris and I have a lot in common, as I do with many of my clients. We both had big dreams. We both had mothers who suffered from drug addiction that led to their incarceration, a devastating result of the war on drugs. 
Like many people unjustly sentenced for drugs, Chris was no kingpin. Long before steel dug into the skin of his wrist, he was handcuffed by a suffocating level of poverty, selling drugs on the corner by the age of 12 to help put food on the table for him and his brother Robert. Ultimately, Chris was sentenced to life as a result of two drug priors in which the combined drug quantity weighed less than three pennies. Inside Chris's package were some of his favorite books. The topics ranged from quantum physics to philosophy to history to computer programming. In prison, Chris had taught himself how to code without access to a single computer. His young mind stimulated by artificial intelligence and economics. His cell may have been small, but his dreams were huge. His margin notes covered almost every page of the books and clearly outlined were designs for Chris's biggest dream, a groundbreaking mental health app to help prevent suicides like those of his brother Robert, who took his own life at 21 when Chris was just 18. Seeing Chris's genius laid out on the page like that, it took my breath away. I started to think about how I could help bring his entrepreneurial spirit to life. Just to be clear, Brittany Barnett is not arguing we should legalize drugs. She's just asking, does the punishment fit the crime? And when we bury people alive with sentences that are unjust, it breaks the heart of God and it should break our heart too. But to work to reduce the sentence and to um, set free the entrepreneurial spirit of people who are unjustly sentenced, that's something that a church that is after God's own heart can get behind, can help bring about. Church after God's own heart, that's our theme at Hope this year. Uh, it's a phrase that comes from the life of King David. Saul is the first king of the nation of Israel, and as Saul's reign is coming to an end, God says to the prophet Samuel, I'd like you to go to Bethlehem, go to the home of a man named Jesse. He's got a bunch of sons, and one of them is going to be the next king of Israel. So Samuel shows up uh, in Bethlehem, and he sees Eliab, the oldest son, and thinks, surely this is the Lord's anointed. But the Lord said to Samuel, don't judge by his appearance or his height. Then God says, the Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. God's not overly interested with external appearance. God's very interested in what's going on in our hearts. And our hope for the course of this year and the work that we're doing and the studying and uh, the activity that we're going to be about as a church it's going to help us become a church after God's own heart. Of course, that begs the question, what's in God's heart? What is near and dear to God's heart? If we're going to be a church after God's heart, we've got to know God's heart, right? How do we know God's heart? Well, Micah gives us some clues, and John the Baptist gives us some clues, and Jesus gives us some clues. Last week, we were in John chapter 14, where Jesus promises us this gift of peace for our hearts and our minds. John chapter 14 is also where Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. John chapter 14, Jesus tells people, if you want to know who God is and what God is like, just look at me. If you've seen me, you have seen the Father. And so if we want to know what is near and dear to the heart of God, we have to become students of the life 
and the teaching of Jesus and then follow it. Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 11. Uh, Luke chapter 11 begins with the disciples asking Jesus, teach us how to pray. Jesus teaches them the Lord's Prayer, and then after teaching the Lord's Prayer, Jesus tells a story. He's trying to illustrate the importance of prayer. I'll start Luke 11, verse 5. Suppose you went to a friend's house at midnight wanting to borrow three loaves of bread. You say to him, a friend of mine has just arrived for a visit and I have nothing for him to eat. And suppose he calls out from his bedroom, don't bother me. The door is locked for the night. My family and I are all in bed. I can't help you. I mean, when you're reading through the stories of Jesus, you really put, think about how crazy it would be if someone had knocked on your door last night at midnight. Give me some bread. Let me sleep. But, Jesus continues, I tell you this, though he won't do it for friendship's sake, if you keep knocking long enough, if you keep knocking long enough, he will get up and give you whatever you need because of your shameless persistence. Jesus tells this story to help us understand the importance and the power of persistence when it comes to prayer. And the next verse is when Jesus says, keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking, and the door will be open to you. Part of what Jesus is trying to teach us or communicate to us in this story, he's telling us at the heart of God, God wants to give us good gifts. God wants to give you good gifts. So keep on asking for it. Keep on knocking and God will give you these good gifts. You know when it's difficult to trust, when, it, when it's difficult to believe that God wants to give us good gifts? It's when it's midnight. I wonder if any of you are here and it's midnight in your life in some sense. There's something that you are going through. There's a challenge that you are facing and you're having a hard time seeing the way forward because it's midnight, it's dark. Maybe it's a mess that you have created in a relationship, at home, in your family, at work, in terms of your finances. And you know you need to ask for help, but there's a part of you that is ashamed to ask or scared to ask, or maybe you've been asking and asking and asking and you keep hearing no, no, no. And maybe you're here and you're ready to quit asking and quit seeking and quit knocking. If that's you, you've come to the right place. This is Lutheran Church of Hope. Everybody say hope. When it's dark, when it's midnight, when, when we're struggling to see the way forward. I get inspired when I look at the lives of people like Martin Luther King Jr. and, and the work of people like Brian Stevenson and Brittany Barnett. They have all kinds of obstacles, all kinds of reasons why it would make sense for them to give up because it's just hopeless, because it's taking forever. And they just keep on knocking. Uh, anybody remember the year 2020? <laughs> we we kind of want to forget that year, right? Uh, just a reminder, there's this worldwide global pandemic. There are shutdowns and lockdowns, and a lot of you became homeschool teachers for months. Uh, the kids were home forever and ever. And that summer, a man named George Floyd was killed in America, and part of what that did was reveal this ugly racial divide that still exists in our country. Another thing that happened in the year 2020, Brittany Barnett published her memoir, a book called A Knock at Midnight. The title of that book comes right from this story in Luke chapter 11 that Jesus tells. It also is the title of a sermon 
Martin Luther King Jr. preached multiple times in the 50s and the 60s. If you go on YouTube and uh, type in a knock at midnight, you can listen to him preach this sermon. I encourage you to do that. Uh, In the sermon, Dr. King says, you know, one of the things about the stories of Jesus, there's always an individual component to them. Keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. That's important for us as individuals. But he says there's always a societal component to it. Remember, he, he's preaching in the 50s and 60s, doing his work in the, the height of the, the civil rights movement. He says, when you look at Jesus' story in Luke 11, you see an outline for how we deal with the problems in our world today. Today for him was the 50s and 60s, but I think you'll see that today could be the year 2024 as well. His premise is it's midnight in America. It's midnight in the social order, and he talks about the wars and the violence of the 50s and 60s as Vietnam is just kind of ramping up. He talks about it being midnight in terms of the psychological order. He references a couple of books that uh, had come out uh, with the authors promising, hey, here's the path for you if you want to overcome anxiety, if you want to uh, get rid of your worry. It's all connected to mental health. And he's saying in the 50s and 60s, there's a darkness in America as it relates to our mental health. Pretty similar to what's going on in our world today. And finally, he says, there's a darkness. It's midnight in terms of the moral order. He spends a lot of time talking about moral relativism, how everyone's like, I'm just going to do whatever feels good. I'm just going to do whatever feels right to me. Remember, in Jesus' story, the darkness of midnight is interrupted by a knock at the door, and the guy knocking at the door is asking for three loaves of bread. So Martin Luther King Jr. says, what we really need are three loaves of spiritual bread, that if we keep on asking and seeking and knocking, if we are persistent in prayer, our good God is going to give us these good gifts of faith and hope and love, and these will be really helpful in dealing with the problems of our day. Friday night, two nights ago, uh, there was an Instagram Live Dr. Brian Brown, who's one of the pastors at Hope Elam, was interviewing Brittany Barnett, a kind of a way of introducing her and uh, letting people know what they can expect if they go uh, Monday at 1 o'clock to the Martin Luther King Jr. event at, uh, at Hope Elam. And at one point in their conversation, Dr. Brown asked her uh, about her prayer life. What role does prayer play in the work that you're doing? And she talked about how she prays with her clients She fasts with them. She said, the most important thing uh, around prayer for me is belief. we got to pray believing that what we're praying for is going to happen. Uh, She has um, a lot of people on her staff, uh, paralegals and other attorneys, and she tells them, when you're doing your work, when you are uh, making motions and when you're uh, typing up files, this is prayer. Do it believing that it's going to lead to freedom for our clients. Every word you type, she says to her staff, is a prayer. Keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking, and the door will be opened. That's really important for the work that she's doing, trying to open the prisoner doors and and set the prisoners free. Uh, One of the people that she worked for a long time uh, to help set free is a woman named Sharonda Jones. Take a look. Take, for example, one of my first clients, Sharonda Jones single mother, talented chef, budding entrepreneur. 
In the early 90s, faced with the care of her quadriplegic mother and the growing needs of her daughter, Sharonda made a poor decision. On a few occasions, she transported drugs for a childhood friend. Years later, she found herself caught in a federal drug conspiracy, bound and shackled and carted off to federal prison to serve out a fundamental death sentence for her very first conviction, felony or otherwise. But Sharonda was so driven and talented that even a life sentence could not keep her from expressing herself through food. The talent it takes to make anything edible, let alone a delicacy, from what's available in prison cannot be overstated. And with the genius for improvisation that still astounds me, Sharonda became renowned for her culinary creations. She ground corn chips into meal for her famous tamales, melted the insides of Oreos to frost cakes. Her red-hot chicken meatballs made with Doritos had the women at Carswell Federal Prison lined up around the corner just to get a taste. Don't ask me how she did it. When a friend asked her recently what she put in her mac and cheese, Sharonda said, cheese. <laughs> she guards her recipes with her life. In the years I've spent fighting to free people from prison, this is one common quality I've noticed about many of my clients. Their unjust sentences interrupted and destroyed their plans to bring great things in the world. True liberation must include a vision for restoring, investing in, and nurturing those plans. And when you start looking at the work of people like Martin Luther King Jr. or Brian Stevenson or Brittany Barnett, one of the things that quickly becomes apparent is they all have discovered, they, they are adamant, there's this connection, a correlation between poverty rates and incarceration rates. It's not wealthy people who are going to Walmart and stealing diapers. It's not wealthy people who are standing on street corners and, and dealing drugs. She says in, in the work that she's done, most of the, the people who get convicted for drugs, they start dealing drugs in their teenage years because the situation in their household, there's no money. And it's the only thing they can think of to get money in order to eat. And when you start to actually hear these stories and listen to the people telling these stories, very quickly, they stop becoming statistics and they start becoming human beings. Human beings that the scripture says have been created in the image of God. Uh, one of the things Brian Stevenson likes to say is each of us is more than the worst thing we've done. Each of us is more than the worst thing we've done. It's true for people in prison. It's true for people at a Lutheran church. And to be a church after God's own heart means we learn, with God's help and God's grace, to view everyone as someone who deserves and is worthy of love. And the way we love them is by investing time and energy and resources. So Brittany Barnett, because of this connection between poverty and incarceration, uh, started a fund, the Manifest Freedom Fund. And they use this fund when there are entrepreneurs who are coming out of prison uh, and they want to start a small business, they can tap into this fund to get the capital to start the business so they don't fall back into this cycle of poverty that was a big part of the reason they ended up in prison in the first place. 
The two people whose story she told in the videos we've watched today each have been released uh, from prison and have tapped into the fund to start their small businesses. Sharonda Jones started a food truck business. She has several food trucks in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. The name of her business is Fed Up, uh, which definitely has a dual meaning. Uh, Chris Young, uh, the guy who gives all of his, his box of stuff to his attorney, Brittany, as he's being transferred from that prison in Kentucky to a prison in Texas, when he is granted clemency, he taps into the fund to start his business, a tech startup, to develop this mental health app to help particularly young black men. If you get the chance, I'd encourage you to Google and, and read about uh, both of them. Chris Young in particular, his story is fascinating. He gets sentenced to life in prison uh, when he's 22 years old, and at his sentencing, the judge who gives him this sentence says, this is not just. It's not just to send you to prison for the rest of your life. When, when you get appointed a judge, it's a lifetime appointment. The judge gives up his judgeship to go to work trying to help reduce the sentence that he just gave to this guy, Chris Young. You can read about it. It's fascinating. They've become close friends. We've got a vision at Hope, and, and it's kind of girded by what we call Hope's 10 for 10 vision. We're, we're preaching through that this January. Last week, it was a goal number one to be evangelists and to tell 10 million people the life-changing gospel of Jesus. This week, it's goal number two. We want to be unity agents, and the action connected to that, we want to build bridges of harmony in a world that's full of division. At the end of Exodus chapter 2, this is a fascinating phrase that, uh, about God. Remember, Exodus is the story of the people of God. They are in bondage in Egypt, and God's going to set them free. And after they have been slaves there for long enough, finally their cry rises up to God. Their groaning rises up to God, and God says, it's time to act. It's time to act, church. Act justly, love mercy, walk humbly, with your God. So, some possible actions for you. Our vision says we want to bring Christ to all cultures. I grew up in a, a small farming community in central Iowa. I am very unfamiliar with black culture. I'm guessing most of you are as well. If we want to bring Christ to all cultures, we actually have to get to know people who are not from our culture. I was talking to uh, Pastor Brown down at Hope Elam. He said, Scott, just get intentional about being uncomfortable. <laughs> get intentional about being uncomfortable. Doesn't that sound great? But he says it's going to be so good for us if we would just get intentional about this. So maybe a starting place for you is simply to read some of these stories. It'll make you uncomfortable if you read these two books. Uh, they're actually in the Kirkendall Library. I just returned them today. I, I have some copies of Just Mercy in my uh, office if you want that. Read through these stories. Get to know some of these stories. It's going to change your perspective on, on how you view the world. Another uh, action step for you might be to join a small group. Uh, if you were here for announcements, we played a little promotion video for small groups. People from our church who were in small groups last fall talking about their experience. And, and one of the things I saw or heard in that video is this paradox when it comes to community. That when you get together in a small group of people, you're going to hear perspectives that are different from your own. And at the same time, when you're in a group of people who have different uh, perspectives on a lot of things, you're going to realize there's a lot of common ground. 
that there's a lot more that unites us than divides us. So I would encourage you, sign up for a small group. Uh, just so you know, one of the small groups is uh, studying, a, it's a class called Outrageous Justice. It comes from our mission partner, Prison Fellowship. So if any of the stuff we've been talking about today is you feel it moving something inside you, it might be a good step for you to sign up for that particular small group. Seven weeks in February and March. We'll talk about it a little bit more next week as well. Now, another action step for you, just pay attention to what's happening at, at Hope Elam. They are part of our church. It's a fascinating story. A predominantly black church, Elam Christian Fellowship, joined with Hope Des Moines, and now they're Hope Elam. And so tomorrow is the Martin Luther King Jr. event. You might want to go to that. The Martin Luther King Jr. holiday is primarily about service. It's supposed to be a day of service. So on Saturday, Hope Elam has worked to set up a lot of serving opportunities, and, and you can sign up to uh, be a part of that. Uh, Pastor Brown said, really, Scott, invite your congregation to come down next Saturday night, January 20th, from 6 to 8 o'clock at night. There's going to be a choir concert. You're like, choir concert? Yeah, it's a gospel choir from Chicago. And he says it will be a worship experience that will put your people out of their comfort zone. But it will strengthen your faith and it'll help you grow in love so maybe next saturday six o'clock you want to go down to hope elam one final action step memorize scripture our bible reading for today from romans chapter 12 began in verse 16 live in harmony with each other don't be too proud to enjoy the company of ordinary people and don't think you know it all That'd be a good verse for us to memorize. Or Micah chapter 6, verse 8. Or how about this one? Galatians 6, verse 9. It's on the screen. Read it out loud with me. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking, and the door will be opened. But sometimes we get tired of waiting. Sometimes uh, it's easy to lose hope and, and things feel dark. And we wonder, how long am I going to have to wait? How long is this going to have to take? Uh, when, when we get to those kinds of places, remember the words of the great Baptist preacher from Georgia. How long? Not long. Take a look. I know you're asking today, how long will it take? Somebody's asking, how long will prejudice blind the visions of men? I come to say to you this afternoon, however difficult the moment, yes, sir. however frustrating the hour, it will not be long no, because truth crushed earth will rise again. Yes, sir. How long, not long, yes, sir. because no lie can live forever. Yes, sir. How long, not long, How long? Yes, because you shall reap what you sow. Yes, How long, not long. Truth forever on the scaffold, wrong forever on the throne. Yet that scaffold sways the future. Behind the dim unknown standeth God within the shadow, keeping watch above his own. How long? Not long. Because the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. How long? Not long. Because my eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He's traveling out the village where the grapes of wrath 
Glory, hallelujah. Glory, hallelujah. 